Greetings, and welcome to CatastropheCast.com. My name is Walter, and today we're going to discuss the little town of Minamata, Japan from the 1950s, and what it has to do with the sprawling city of Basra, Iraq in the 1970s. Believe it or not, these two very different cities have something in common, and that's what we're going to discuss today. Beginning with Minamata, it had a population of about 50,000 people back in the 1950s. It was an industrial town, and about 8% of the population was actually working for Chiso Corporation. Chiso Corporation opened the factory back in 1908, and they produced quite a bit of chemicals. So they, uh, of course, making these chemicals caused them to also have chemical waste and industrial waste. Now, back in the 50s, you know, actually back starting in 1908, they had a, some sort of clue about chemical waste, but they didn't know as much as we know today how bad chemical waste can be. And what they had done in the past, before the 1950s when this incident occurred, they basically decided to just dispose of the byproducts of their manufacturing just in the waterways. So they just went ahead said, you know, we're just going to dump all this in this creek, let it flow out to the ocean, take, you know, that'll take care of it. Now, as you know, uh, Japan eats quite a lot of seafood. If you look, Japan actually has the fifth highest consumption rate of seafood in the world. And Chiso dumping this chemical waste into the waterways, well, the fishing cooperatives got after them in 1926 and 1943, and Chiso Corporation actually went ahead and compensated them for the problems that they were finding, which was that there wasn't as much seafood available. So you can imagine if you are the fifth most highest consumption rate of, of seafood, that when the fishermen can't bring in enough to feed the population, that, that's that's pretty bad. So that's how Chiso's first foray into the chemical waste issue came about. Now, one of the chemicals that Chiso Corporation actually had manufactured was acetaldehyde. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right or not, but it's basically a chemical that they produced and they had used uh, manganese dioxide as the catalyst for that up until 1951. In 1951, they changed from manganese to ferric sulfide, which in itself wouldn't have been a big deal, except that the side reaction to creating the acetaldehyde was that it produced an organic mercury compound, and that compound is called methylmercury. So they're producing this and then, of course, sending this methylmercury off through the waterways and off into Minamata Bay, where lots of people lived around the bay. Lots of people ate the fish and seafood that came from that bay. In April 1956, a little girl showed up at Chiso Factory's hospital. The doctors were actually stumped because they didn't know what was going on. The little girl presented with uh, difficulty talking, uh, 
difficulty walking. She couldn't ha keep her balance and she was having convulsions. Two days later, after she showed up, her sister uh, presented at the factory hospital with the same exact symptoms. The public health office was notified and they decided that the community was under some epidemic of an unknown disease that affected the central nervous system. They did a house-by-house -house search in Minamata and discovered that there were eight more patients that were suffering from the same disease. All these people were all hospitalized. During 1956, a committee was put together and the committee was known as the Strange Disease Countermeasures Committee. They decided that this weird disease that they were looking at was just a local issue and that it those people whose homes it affected, those homes should be disinfected. That's kind of the same time that they noticed the strange animal behavior. Cats would have seizures and die. There's a, it, during the reading on this podcast, I believe it was called strange cat dance death or something to that effect. The cats would just have, have these odd seizures and then just die. Crows, they say, fell from the sky as, when they were flying, and fish would just spontaneously die. Now, they kept investigating as the disease progressed. About 40 people were discovered, and of those 40, 14 people died. That's about a 35% mortality rate. Those that actually lived had all the previous symptoms, the inability to walk and talk, having convulsions. They also had other symptoms like uh, the loss of sensation in their limbs, difficulty seeing, difficulty hearing, and swallowing. They, many people just had the inability to talk or function at all. Officials started to investigate, you know, the outbreak because they wanted to know what was going on. They found that it was often something that happened to members in the same family. All the affected people lived on Minamata Bay and, of course, had a high fish and shellfish consumption. The other thing that they found was that the family cats who were eating scraps from the family table were got sick right along with the family members. And at that point, the officials decided that it must be some sort of food poisoning. Three years after the first sickness was found in Minamata Bay, investigators decided, or actually investigators got really close. They figured that it was some sort of heavy metal poisoning. The Chiso plant was, of course, the primary concern. Everyone thought that it, the poisoning was coming from the plant itself. Of course, they all knew that the plant had a history of causing you know waste runoff that affected the fishing industry so why not something that could affect people they at first thought that the disease was caused by uh, manganese poisoning and then when that didn't pan out they thought maybe it was thallium or selenium or possibly multiple contaminants in 1958, a neurologist by the name of Douglas McAlpine said that he recognized the disease and it looked to be mercury poisoning. Chiso had tested and actually found 
that their wastewater contained a great deal of heavy metals, including mercury. They found the problem, but they hid it. They hid the information from the investigators. The company lied and said they were going to put together this water purification system in back in 1959 for the wastewater so that, you know, the water they were going to put out was not going to be poisonous at all. Thing is, internal memos from the company actually showed that they knew it was a lie and that they knew that the water was still going to be poisoned. So they knew that this thing wasn't going to work, but, you know, they presented it with pomp and circumstance and put it in place. But of course, they kept poisoning the water. The workers by this time were striking and people who lived in the city were actually rioting. Chiso had decided as a makeshift way of, of fixing things that they rerouted their wastewater and they sent it to another area. Thing is, the pollution just spread to that area, including more mercury poisoning in that area. Officially, the water was tested and found to be, of course, mercury poisoning in February of 1959. Now, during this, I, I of course, learned, you know, how much mercury does the average person have in their body? And the average person actually has about four parts per million of mercury. Now, the non-symptomatic people of Minamata actually showed that they had levels of 191 parts per million. So that's uh, that's a huge increase, but yet they weren't showing any symptoms. Symptomatic people, like that little girl who showed up at first, they were actually shown to have an average of, of 704 parts per million of mercury. That's more than 17,000% above normal. The shocking thing was when a study group decided, you know, that, okay, it is mercury poisoning and it is being caused by Chiso Company, they presented their findings to the government. The government said thank you, took the results, and then the, they dissolved the group the very next day. The disease actually worsened as it spread. Many of the babies were born to the village uh, with cerebral palsy even to mothers that had no symptoms. And, of course, it's because of the methylmercury that was in their system. Like I said, a non-symptomatic person still had 191 parts per million, which is a great deal more than a just an average person. The effects of the poisoning actually lasted for quite a long time. There was an increase in stillborns in the village, and the stillborn rate actually affected males more than it affected females. The other effect was there was an overall increase in female births and a decrease in male births. So in some way, the methylmercury in the disaffected mother concentrated and somehow caused the male children to be, you know, stillborn. The other lasting impact from the poisoning was that people who actually were poisoned, maybe not even showing the symptoms that everyone else had, but they were more apt to have psychological problems.
Now, throughout the years, like I mentioned before, the fishermen were compensated based on you know their loss of of the ability to to bring in their their fish, the you know the amount of fish that were available to them and such. But the people weren't, and it it's a very distinct thing having to do with Japanese society, because the victims. These people who were suffering, they were actually looked down on in Japanese society. They were they were viewed as lessers. Now they fought back, but they didn't have the support of the people in the village. You know, the, their next door neighbors, the people who were not were not affected. They they had to fight against the Chiso Corporation, but they also had to fight their own community. Because they were being ostracized, Chiso initially had said, "Okay, we're going to give adults two hundred eighty dollars per year." This was back in the sixties, and we're going to give children eighty-three dollars per year. And then, if you had someone in your family that died, well, we're going to give you just a flat one-time payment of nine hundred dollars. The Japanese government officially got involved, and they were looking for a true resolution, and it took. A decade, and they were still struggling on what true compensation should have been. A trial finally was undertaken, and it took about four years to conclude. The court found that there was going to be a total compensation of about three point four million dollars. One of the articles I read said that this was the highest award by a Japanese court. That, of course, is you know three point four million dollars, however many yen that was back in. 1960-ish, but I don't know if that has been eclipsed since then.、Uh, there's there's not one way to tell. But anyway, at the time, the 3.4 million U.S. dollars was the highest amount ever awarded by a Japanese court. In all, there were 2,265 patients who were actually certified as having the disease, which was now named Minamata disease. And of those 2,265 patients, 1,800 died. In all, there were about 10,000 people who were compensated by Chiso Corporation. Now, the Chiso Company actually ended up paying billions of dollars. You know, after、uh, all the settlements have been done, Chiso is effectively a bankrupt company, even though they still exist to this day. The Japanese government actually bought them out just to keep them afloat, so that they could continue to pay the fees for their victims. They were renamed the Japan New Chiso Corporation in 2012, and they continue to make chemicals to this day. As a side note, it took 40 years after the crisis began for Minamata Bay to be declared safe. So, how does Minamata, Japan, now population thirty thousand, what does it have to do with the Iraqi city of Mosul? Well, like Minamata, the population actually experienced a decrease. Minamata went from fifty thousand back in the fifties to thirty thousand today. Mosul went from about. One and a half million people down to back in the 80s. After this incident, it 
went down into the 800,000s, I believe. But, of course, that was also a side effect of the war that Iraq and Iran were in. Back in 1971, Mosul was going through a really rough drought. The drought affected half a million people. And Saddam Hussein, yes, that that Saddam Hussein, was the number two person in the Iraqi government at the time. And it's unclear, but it appears that he was actually working in agriculture. They, because of the drought, they needed to find grain to be able to import so that farmers could plant their crops and that they would not have a bad harvest. They'd be able to actually harvest and feed everyone. So uh, the Iraqi government bought 95 tons of wheat and barley. Now, the wheat and barley that they bought was for planting, absolutely planting only, and it was covered with a fungicide. That fungicide, of course, was made with, as you guessed it, methylmercury. The seeds were actually dyed a pinkish-orange color, and that indicated that they were not for human consumption, actually not for consumption at all. Besides the pinkish-orange color, the you know that was not the only thing that these seeds were sprayed with they were sprayed with a mercury-based fungicide at the request of the iraqi government the grain was delivered between september and november of 1971 and it was promptly stolen it was actually a waste if you think about it because it arrived after planting season planting season in iraq at the time I don't know what it is today, if it's changed, but it was October, November. And a lot of this grain actually showed up after planting season was over. So, you know, the farmers were presented with all this grain. What are they going to do with it? Well, their, their seed's already in the ground. So they decided to go ahead and just eat it. I mean, why not? They didn't have food. They needed food. This was a grain that they could use. Why not use it? But, I mean, why would they eat tainted grains? Why would they eat grains that were covered in methylmercury? There were actually a couple of factors that led to this. First, it's actually unclear if the farmers were told that the grain was poisonous or not. There are some reports that say that the farmers were told and they had to leave a thumbprint saying, I understand this is not for consumption and I must plant this. But there are other reports that say they were just given the grain saying it was, you know, okay to plant, you know, use it as you need. The second, of course, was they were in a drought. They needed food. Third, the warnings, there were warnings that were printed on these bags of all this 95 tons of grain, but the warnings were printed in English and in Spanish. That's it. They were printed in English because, of course, we generally think of English as the international language, and Spanish because this grain actually was developed in Mexico because Mexico had developed it to deal with the drought that they had gone through. And this was a very, very good grain that would prosper 
in that type of environment. And the last bit is that there was a black and white skull and crossbones design that was actually painted on the bags. But Iraqis were unfamiliar with it. They didn't quite know what it was, so, you know, it it must it was just foreign to them. Even those that did know that the grain was poisoned, well, they had a bit of false hope because they thought they might be able to use this grain for food after all. I say that because when they fed the grain to the animals, the animals were fine. So this is supposed to be poisoned. I feed it to the, the cows and I feed it to the chickens and the chickens eat and then they go off and then we get eggs and everything's fine. So, I mean, it appeared that everything was fine. And then they were able to take the grain itself and they were able to wash it. Well, that dye that I mentioned, the pinkish orange dye, that washed off. So they thought, oh, well, if it washed off, then whatever poison is that they say is coating this, that must have washed off too. Thing was, the dye came right off, but the fungicide stayed with the actual seed. So these people were thinking that they were going to be fine when they really, really weren't. So the grain ended up being primarily used for bread. So, which in a lot of Middle Eastern cultures, bread is a big part of the meal. So that's what they primarily used it for. They used it for bread that people would eat and they used it to feed the animals. The bread poisoned the people who ate the bread. The animals were poisoned. And when they were slaughtered, that also poisoned the people. It took a little while, of course, this isn't an instant thing. So it took a little while for the symptoms to start showing up. And the symptoms were all the same that the people of Minamata had experienced. But unlike Minamata, you know, population 50,000, you're looking at 1.5 million people here, the effect was really much more widespread. They got wheat and barley both, but the wheat alone was enough to cause poisoning in more than 3 million people. There had actually been a much smaller mercury poisoning outbreak in 1960. So, in late 1971 and early 1972, when people started showing up at the hospital with these really strange symptoms of Minamata disease, that of course the doctors did not know was Minamata disease, the doctors actually slowly started to recognize what the issue was. And immediately they contacted the government. Well, the government, January 1972, they issued a warning. They said, do not eat this grain. If you have this pink orange grain, you need to get rid of it. The warning was actually not all heated because remember, these people were in a drought, they needed food. So at the request of the government, the Iraqi army actually was told to go out and dispose of any grain that they found. And if they found anyone selling the grain, those people were to be put to death. Now, because of this new threat, you know, if, if I had this grain, I could be killed. The farmers actually decided to take whatever grain they had left and just dump it. So they, they 
you know, they dumped it wherever they could. And it ended up poisoning not only the ground, but it actually ended up poisoning the waterways. So the Tigris River was absolutely poisoned due to them throwing these seeds out. Now, back in the 1970s, actually before liberation, uh, we don't know a lot about Iraqi society, but the official tallies were that there were 6,530 patient admissions for people who had uh, experienced this disease. And about one third of that number was children. About, you know, 2,200 kids were actually affected. And officially, there were 459 deaths. Now, we know that these numbers are, are wrong just because it can't be. There's not just the fact of, of, you know, saving face in the world, but also the fact that if you have someone who is in a remote area and they're living in a village and, you know, there's there's no amenities, you know, this was back in the 70s back in Iraq. So they, you know, if they lived in a small village, they may not have had a telephone these people may have just died and no one would have known about it. So they would have been buried by the families and forgotten. They say that about, this was from the World Health Organization, about 28% of the population, and remember that was 1.5 million people, were actually affected. And the mortality rate was 21%. I mean, that is, that is huge. It's not quite as much as what we saw in Minamata, but it was still a huge, huge percentage. Doctors actually suggest now that the numbers, you know, of, of what we saw were way too low. So we know that it wasn't just 6,500 patient admissions and 453 deaths. We know it was quite a bit more of that. They've decided that there were about 100,000 cases just of brain damage due to this disease. And the number of official deaths is probably somewhere in the hundreds of thousands. The thing with this disease, with this mercury poisoning, is it has an after effect that is still felt today in Iraq. If you look up the incidence of Parkinson's worldwide, Iraq has the absolute highest incidence of Parkinson's in the world. No other country has the rate of Parkinson's disease that they have in Iraq. And the curious thing about Parkinson's disease is it's a disease that its symptoms are very, very much like mercury poisoning. So that's it. The tale of Minamata, Japan, and Mosul, Iraq. I want to thank you for being part of the podcast. If you want to get in touch with me, there's lots of ways. You can go to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash catastrophecast. You can email me, podcast at catastrophecast.com. We are on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at catastrophecast. Just get a hold of me. You can come to our webpage and tell us what you want to hear. Thanks for listening. <laughs>